This content contains graphic description of consequences of warfare. Listener discretion is advised. When we hear the news, we think that this is horror. But what we tend to forget is that this is just the beginning of decades of suffering for so many. The images on our screens of men, women and children running for safety, medics rescuing people under rubbles, rushing ambulances and collapsing buildings. Shock and confusion. This is what happens to civilians' health during and after the bombing. We've seen a consistent pattern of harm across the decade where 9 out of 10 of casualties are civilians when explosive weapons are used in towns and cities. And despite this devastating casualty rate, tens of thousands of people continue to lose their lives and suffer injuries each year, even during the COVID-19 pandemic. A young girl from Raqqa named Fatima, visited by Amnesty International, is wearing a pink jacket. With her bouncy brown curls, she tells about her experience of when an artillery shell struck her family home on June 10th in 2017. Her mother and three sisters were killed. Fatima and her father recall their experiences of the tragic event that changed their lives forever. Fatima tells us that she was by the door and that an explosion sent her flying to another part of the home. Her father adds that the rest of the family members were all lying dead around her. Despite her young optimism of feeling better compared to how she felt before, Fatima is now in a wheelchair. The artillery that hit Fatima's home was fired from a U.S. military base, 16 kilometers north of Raqqa. According to the Amnesty International report, War of Annihilation, Devastating Toll on Civilians, focusing on Raqqa, Army Sergeant Major John Wayne Troxell of the U.S. Army reportedly said that in five months they fired 30,000 artillery rounds on ISIS targets and that they fired more rounds in five months in Raqqa, Syria than any Marine or Army battalion since the Vietnam War. The same volley of artillery that killed Fatima's mother and sisters also killed more than a dozen neighbors, including seven members of the Mala Ali family. They tell how they heard the explosion and came running when they heard their daughters screaming. What they saw were bodies on top of bodies. Two streets away, another artillery strike killed 12 more civilians, six children, five women and a man, on July 16, 2017. Among the dead were Dalal al-Mansur and three of her daughters, Jamila, eight, Islam, three, and Ritaj, only seven months old. Only her daughter Maryam survived and her husband, who was across the road. These are only brief lines of the very few survivors' voices. In 2021 alone, action on armed violence recorded over 10,500 civilian casualties. Their experiences encapsulate the harsh reality of turmoil of a human at war. But the deaths 
Physical and psychological injuries, as well as the erosion of public health, goes beyond the tragedy in the city of Raqqa, where Fatima lives. At least 123 countries are affected by explosive weapons and collectively show the direct link of high risk of harm that civilians face when explosive weapons are used in populated areas. For more than 20 years, I've been piecing together human bodies torn apart by mines, bombs and bullets. South Sudan, Somalia, Afghanistan, Libya, Syria and Yemen are part of the long list of war-torn countries I've worked in. This is Dr. Marco Balden, a former war surgeon of the International Committee of the Red Cross. I'm here to give you an insight of my reality as surgeon, hoping that it may propel some of you into action. The aim is not to shock you, but rather to bring you into what is my world, a man-made reality. You see here a three-year-old child who has lost her right foot as the result of an airstrike. The surgeon has healed the wounds, but this little girl will require a new prosthetic limb every some six months till completion of her growth. And then about every three years until as much as she will live. She has high chances of developing psychological disorders and will carry the mental scars of the airstrike for life. In the words of her father, her future is bleak in a conservative Yemeni society where she lives. Sadly, for surgeons like me, she belongs to the group we uh, label as light cases. Contrary to bullets, which cause harm by penetrating the victim's body, Explosive devices harm the human body through multiple mechanisms. The powerful blast causes a sudden massive increase of pressure, what we call the blast wave, which tears apart the victim's body. There is also the production of a lot of heat resulting in burns and uh, injuries to the lungs uh, from toxic fumes. And the blast wind, which causes crush crushes injuries, combined with the propagation of metallic fragments that penetrate the body of the victim. In a mass casualty situation, that is when patients are flooded in a hospital, a patient's condition may dictate the physician's decision to let him live or die. The immediate injury that presents at the point of wounding, as mentioned, burns, penetration of fragmentation and shrapnel, are the more obvious physical injuries. But there's also a more obscure harm that exacerbates all the other immediate woundings. We spoke to Dr. Emily Mayhew from the Center of Blast Injury Studies at Imperial College in London. When a blast occurs in an urban environment, the ways that it can injure the people in that immediate environment are almost infinite. We now, particularly when they're landing at ground level, many of our buildings are apartment buildings, so they're tall. Uh, they have a lot of glass windows, particularly on the bottom where there are usually shops or cafes or public spaces. Urban environments are so deadly and, and so uh, problematic for us to deal with the consequences of every blast that echoes down these brick corridors. The first thing is the obvious stuff, the trauma caused by the physical fragments of the device. 
what makes blast injury special is that there's also something happening that you can't see because the device itself is powered. We talk about explosive payloads and the explosive material within the device carries with it a tremendous amount of energy. The easiest way to explain this is that when you hear a bomb go off in somewhere like Kabul, you hear the bomb go off, you know that people are injured, but for several hundred metres around, car alarms are detonated. No damage is done to the car, there might be some dust, but the alarms have been detonated. And they've been detonated by this invisible blast wave, which has powered through the surroundings. More importantly, it's powered through the human being that's already damaged by the impact of the physical material of, of the bomb. And that's an important thing to consider. And we didn't know very much about that before 2010. That's going to make the consequences of the point of wounding much worse. It's going to blow the wounds open widely. It's going to transport microbiological material, very fine dust particles, deep into the body. And that's going to cause a huge problems with infection. It's going to cover the burn injury that, that blast often generates. But mainly from that moment on, it's going to affect the whole molecular and genetic construction of the human being. And it's going to change them in the way that they react to the blast injury they've just suffered. So what makes blast injury so much worse than really any other kind of, of injury trauma that is experienced in warfare is firstly that it's experienced all the time. Um, is It's the most common form of injury. From the First World War onwards, we've been blowing people up with complicated, ragged munitions where there has also been this transfer of blast energy. So it's it's by far the most common. It's not an, it's not exceptional. It's not rare and the most damaging. It creates what what medics call complex polytrauma, which means that everything you can conceivably think of is injured badly and is going to need a great deal of technically demanding medical care for a very long period of time. And that's just from the point of wounding until the admittance to hospital. And then after hospital, it's really a lifetime continuum of care. So we know when we hear the sound of blast injury, that that isn't going to be patching someone up. It isn't going to be mending their broken leg. It's going to be plastic surgery and orthopedic surgery and burn surgery, abdominal, and almost every form of trauma response activity that a medical team can undertake is required by blast injury. And that's just at the point of wounding. What comes later is even more complicated. Blast injury is complex polytrauma. It isn't just a sort of general chaos. One of the things that we've learned in the Centre for Blast Injury Studies is that you have to take the, consequence of the consequences of the injury limb by limb, organ by organ. We've been working on paediatric blast injury, which I think are possibly three of the most depressing words to hear together in a sentence ever. It's an indication that our humanity is so compromised. When we went to speak to experts in paediatric trauma and said, is this is paediatric blast injury about the same as adult blast injury, but scaled down? They sighed very deeply and they said, no, it isn't. 
And they made us repeat a sentence that we repeat pretty much every day in the Paediatric Blast Injury Partnership. And that is that children are not little adults, they're little human beings. And they have their own anatomy and they have their own physiology and they are injured in a different way. They bleed to death or don't bleed to death in different way from adults. They don't survive things that don't appear to be very serious. They are generally smaller than adults um, and they are still growing. So their anatomy is affected by those physical uh, impacts of the bomb in a very significant way. If a child loses a limb that they're going to that was growing that hadn't reached full size, that's then that's very complicated in the longer term. Pediatric neurology, so uh, where they've sustained brain damage, is really very difficult to operate on when you have the finest medical facilities in the world, and it's it's really and as you can understand, uh, as those medical facilities get less well resourced, then that's particularly problematic. They're going to need a great deal of attention. They're going to need a lot of scans. They're going to need to understand if their skull is fractured, how much brain damage has been done. And almost certainly alongside that, they will have uh, damage done to the tissue on their face, so the soft tissue on their face. So when we think of a head, we should think of it as as being a brain, a skull and a face because the child is going to have to live with the consequences of tissue loss that the world can't see in their brain and the tissue loss that the world can see on their face. So brain damage caused by blast injury, particularly in children, is something that is enormously is going to be enormously complicated again for the surgeon, for the person performing rehabilitation, for the child and their caregiver. We're also good at saving those. We have systems of tourniquets and very experienced medics now who can save a life that otherwise would have been lost in the First World War, that would have been lost if you lost your leg because you simply bled to death. So again, although these are very serious, they are probably the most common adult injuries. We do see high levels of survival from limb loss. And quite often the limb loss, the original limb loss, it doesn't look like the leg needs to be amputated. But this is where our invisible blast wave has been at work. The material within the explosion has blown off the soft tissue and the invisible blast wave has destroyed the bone. It's almost like somebody has jumped off a building and they've landed on their heels and their bone has been compressed up. There's nothing we can do to save that. And so that leg is going to have to be amputated. It was amputated all but in name by the effect of the blast wave. And we're just going to have to finish off the job of the bomb for it. In the abdomen, for instance, the unprotected abdomen, the wet you have the damage that's done by the fragments from the bomb, uh, which can tear through things like bladder and bowel. And that's particularly problematic because of infection. If you have a ruptured bowel, then you're likely to spread the bacteria that's in the bowel that really isn't supposed to be anywhere else. It spreads to all the other areas in the abdomen and causes tremendous problem with bacterial infection, particularly by someone who is already devastated by the effects of the bomb. And it's worth noting something that's time specific, but specific to our time. Increasingly, we have fewer and fewer antibiotics that can deal with these kinds of really terrible infections. So there's been a moment where we can deal with that, but we're coming out of that period. We're coming into an age where antibiotics are much less useful. 
So that idea of spreading really powerful infections around the body, and that's what happens when you're injured in the abdomen, that's going to become much more problematic in the future because we don't have anything to deal with that. When you move a little way up the torso, you come to the lungs. And something that we recognized at the center of for blast injury study is something that we ended up calling blast lung. Your lungs are made of some of the finest tissue in your body. It's like very, very fine lace that easily tears if, if it becomes wet or it becomes damaged. And that invisible blast wave passes through the fine tissue of the lungs and it can destroy them. It doesn't destroy all of them, but it can destroy some of them. They break, the very fine membranes break, and you start to experience bleeding within the lung. Again, if you're not looking for this, you don't know it's happened until about three or four hours after the injury when the patient starts to cough up blood. If it isn't treated and it isn't recognised and you don't have the ability to give oxygen to the patient, then it's a slow, invisible mechanism of death. And, and finally, and, and really importantly for both adults and children, this invisible blast wave that, that does the damage, it does the damage to places like the lungs, it can do tremendous damage in the ears and the eyes. There are membranes in the ears and the eyes. And when the blast wave, it's when you hold your nose and blow, you can hear the membranes click. When the blast wave passes through the head, uh, it can do damage to that membrane. So it can render the patient temporarily deaf or, or it can do damage that's going to be more permanent. And the same thing with um, ocular blast injury in the eye. Membranes in the eye can be blown and the eye ceases to work. When it happens to a child, it's catastrophic. So I think the one of the things that we think about as being the most catastrophic consequence of blast injury usually relates to ocular or, or, or hearing damage is that that child will no longer be able to go to school, they won't be able to read anymore, and their prospects will be much diminished for the future. Widespread blast and fragmentations or some randomness in where explosive warheads might land means that civilians are not being adequately protected when these weapons are used in towns and cities. Where such attacks are repeated or where multiple warheads are detonated across an area, the harm is multiplied further. And that isn't the end of it. Frontline medics have said that they now, more than ever in the previous decades, fear more for their lives. We spoke to Sophie Desoulières of MSF, also known as Doctors Without Borders. Well, access to healthcare is affected in a war zone because people are simply really scared of, of moving, right? Moving anywhere comes at a huge cost, at cost to your lives. So what it means um, for in terms of access to healthcare, what it means for the sick and the wounded is that they will wait until there is no other way but to try to reach a health structure. Right. So what we've seen, for example, in places like Yemen, where um, deliveries that um, of babies that could have been, you know, normal, regular um, deliveries, uh, because um, families had to wait so long or um, until the last minute to try to move in particularly populated areas sometimes you have different neighborhoods or even streets that are held by different groups so it means you know crossing all of that and so 
for um, a pregnant woman who's about to deliver, this can essentially mean the difference between a happy and normal delivery and tragic outcomes. So it de facto leads to um, a huge detrimental impact on the health of a population, particularly in populated areas. What what attacks on hospitals or healthcare uh, means is you know the, you have the we've had a number of instances and in certain conflicts, actual targeted attacks on healthcare and and as a method of war, as a method of weakening um, different parties. Of these attacks is not only on on the facilities themselves, and as we've talked about, it it destroys huge infrastructure. It it destroys um, um, tools and laboratories and, and supplies that are very hard to to get to come by to replace in places that are in the midst of a conflict so it not only destroys the physical infrastructure but it also destroys the sense of safety that there should be in a space like a hospital of safety for patients and of safety for medical and and in our case for medical and humanitarian personnel um, to be able to do their jobs and to to meet the needs of populations. When as a medical personnel, you can't feel safe in an area, you will, as anyone, try to flee, go somewhere else. And we have seen entire areas losing medical personnel who who would be able to meet the needs of the population in times where that's where they really need it. It's the full spectrum of it. There's also threats and attacks on ambulances, on being able to refer patients towards hospitals. And then what we're seeing as well, perhaps very worryingly and increasingly, are threats and attacks to medical and humanitarian personnel. While the targeting of hospitals and other medical facilities amplify the difficulty of providing care for war-related injuries, such as blast injuries from explosive weapons, the collapse of primary healthcare systems also stop medical personnel from providing all other medical cases such as diabetes, heart disease or childbirth. But what now? The United Nations Secretary-General, the President of the International Committee of the Red Cross, and a growing number of states have acknowledged grave human costs resulting from the use of explosive weapons in populated areas, as well as the urgent need to address it. Ireland is currently leading a process to develop a political declaration to protect civilians from the harm of explosive weapons in populated areas. But the commitments of states are still in negotiation, In particular, physical injuries from explosive weapons are some of the main lines in the discussion where civil society specifically wants to see strong commitments to provide victim assistance. Alma Tislijan Al-Ostan from Humanity and Inclusion has been closely involved in the negotiation process. Our views on the political declaration are that first, it has to prevent further casualties. It should strengthen the protection of civilians, but also protect environment and services where people live during and after the conduct of hostilities. 
The second thing that political declarations should, well, actually must ensure is assistance to victims. Now, just before one starts thinking that victim assistance is based on the principle of charity where we have to help poor people that are affected by conflict, I would like to explain what it means and where it comes from. Up to now, already many legally binding instruments and political declarations aiming to reduce armed violence include commitments on the need to assist victims. And many years ago, the term victim has been defined, so we all know and understand who needs assistance and how it is tailored. In 2016, um, we gathered representatives of humanitarian organizations, uh, but also UN agencies, civil society and survivors to agree on a common language that we will later advocate to be a standalone commitment on victim assistance in the future political declaration. And there we agreed that victims are people that are injured, those that have survived accidents, family members of those that are injured and killed, as well as affected communities. And victim assistance covers a wide range of measures uh, to reduce ongoing human suffering. It includes emergency and continuing medical care, physical rehabilitation, psychological and psychosocial support, um, measures to ensure the social and economic inclusion of survivors, but also an adoption or adjustment of relevant laws and public policies supported by data collection and analysis. But providing assistance to victims is additionally challenging in the specific context where explosive weapons are used in populated areas. These challenges relate, for example, to the additional barriers preventing access to basic vital services due to the continuous and cumulative damage to critical infrastructure. It also relates to the need for affected communities to have access to principled humanitarian aid. In the current draft text of the political declaration that was shared by government of Ireland in 2021, commitment on victim assistance seems to sound like a voluntary suggestion that is offered to states. And this we find problematic and recommend making a commitment on victim assistance a more obligatory commitment rather than a voluntary one. And therefore, instead of saying make every effort to assist victims, we suggest to replace it with a stronger formulation saying provide, facilitate and support assistance to victims. I would like to conclude by clarifying that we are all aware that the term victim in the context of explosive weapons covers quite a large category of population given the nature of modern warfare. But then again, the fact that there is a large number of victims and a widespread pattern of destruction is not a justification for ignoring or denying people their rights and recognizing their needs even in the most challenging circumstances. It should be a driver of the urgency of addressing this problem in the political declaration and agreeing on a strong commitment to assist victims. Because we owe this to all of those people that have lost their lives and all those that have lost their limbs, to those that suffer from trauma from continuous bombing and shelling, to those that are displaced because they are feared for their lives and the lives of their loved ones, while their homes turned into dust and rubble. We owe them all a strong political declaration with new standards to prevent further casualties, 
but also to improve life conditions of all affected population by explosive weapons.